0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is a Carolina Academic Press production where we discuss everything law school. The Law School Lounge is a place for students and faculty alike to discuss law school and the law. We hope you'll hang out with us for a while. Um, welcome. You have found your way to the Law School Lounge podcast. This is your host, Crystal Norton, and I am so excited about this week's episode. I have three guests with me in this episode. Professors Robert Jarvis, or Bob, Professor Wesley Cochran, or Wes, and Professor Ronald Rischlach, or Ron. And they're here to talk to us today about gaming law and gambling law, and we go through the history of those topics. We talk about the typical elements to a crime related to gambling. We talk about a very recent case that came out regarding Native Americans, Indian tribes, reservations, and whether or not mobile betting and other types of gambling are permitted within the state of Florida. We talk about office pools and lotteries. We also define a lot of terms associated with betting and gambling, what you'll very easily notice is that I myself am not particularly competent when it comes to gambling in general, especially, of course, when it comes to the legal aspects of gambling, because I myself am not a huge gambler in any way. I might like a card game here and there if I'm visiting Vegas, but other than that, it's not really my scene. And so, in this episode, they walk me through a lot of the terminology surrounding gambling and gaming law. They walk me through a lot of the current topics and issues, including things like esports. And we just had a great time chatting about all of this. And they are experts within this area. They do hail from three different states, Mississippi, Texas, and Florida. And it's this is very important because gaming and gambling law in particular is very much state-based. And so they give their perspectives from the states that they're most familiar with. And please understand that nothing in this episode constitutes any legal advice. All three of them make very clear that if you want to engage in these types of activities, you should be familiar with the law where you're located, and if necessary, consulting an attorney and getting legal advice. And so do not in any way take this to be any more than a conversation about a really interesting topic that we all had a really great time discussing. And if you're interested in learning more about gaming law and gambling law, you need to check out their book, gaming law and gambling law, cases, materials, and problems available at cap-press.com or Carolina Academic Press's website. You can also find out on places like Amazon. There they walk through interesting cases, nuanced situations, and talk more in depth about some of the things that we cover today in this episode. So be sure to give that a look. It's in its second edition. It came out in 2021. And I think if you enjoy this material, you'll really enjoy taking a look at their book. So with that being said, let's jump into it. Hello, everybody. I am here today with Bob Jarvis, Wes Cochran, and Ron Reachlock, and we are here today to talk about gambling and betting, specifically to talk about sports betting and particularly and how it's evolved over time, how different states handle sports betting, current developments, and what the future holds. And These three wonderful, well-learned individuals are the author of the Carolina Academic Press Casebook titled, Gaming Law and Gambling Law, Cases, Materials and Problems, now in its second edition. And they all teach courses on this subject matter. We even have a very recent case to talk about that's super interesting. And so I hope that you find our discussion of this talk not, not only interesting, but helpful because i feel like a lot of people gamble and they don't even know that they're gambling or they don't (laughs) know whether gambling is legal especially when it comes to sports and you know i'm personally in new orleans ron's in mississippi bob's in florida and wes is in texas so we're all really in the sports world whether we want to be or not and so first if we could dive a little bit into what is gambling for purposes of the law
1: uh really gambling is a fairly simple Equation the law we break things down into elements there has to be uh, a consideration the bet the thing you put up that you risk losing is part one part two is an indeterminate outcome some states some jurisdictions say it has to be based on chance uh, and so if it's a game of skill it's not gambling that's why some places you can have poker tournaments and put them on tv other places that's considered gambling uh and then there's got to be the reward the the, the pot that you're playing for. So you've got risk, you've got an indeterminate outcome, and and you've got a reward. And uh, those are the three elements of gambling.
0: And would you say that gambling covers things like office pools and fantasy sports? I mean, what exactly does it come down to? Because I feel like people do a lot of things in their daily lives and don't realize maybe they're gambling.
1: Yeah, well, you can take a very broad perspective, look at gambling, and we can say you're gambling when you walk across the street. Uh, you you can you can do it that way. But traditionally, uh, and again, this is going to vary jurisdiction to jurisdiction. It's amazing what some states, a uh, fishing tournament, uh, they can't have them because it, it's it's gambling. Uh, but uh, uh, traditionally, the things you mentioned actually are probably gambling, but usually considered de minimis. And... Even if gambling is frowned upon or maybe illegal, a lot of times social gambling, fun bets that people make with one another are excluded. But that, again, can vary. So please don't ex- take this as legal advice uh, You find out what what's permitted in your state.
0: No, of course, of course. No, it's just interesting to hear how different, it varies from state to state. I think a lot of people assume it's more federal than state to state, or that the federal government has some role. And so, could you just tell us a little bit about how we got here to this really diverse approach to gambling today? Yeah,
1: well, we got here probably because uh, there's a very limited federal role actually in gambling. There are some federal laws that cover gambling, but it's it's much more state-oriented than most uh, most things you would think about. And traditionally, criminal law, it comes out of criminal law. And traditionally, criminal law was a state law topic, and federal involvement has grown over the years. Uh, but when it comes to gambling, it's still very much, except for the Wire Act and, and large, more than five uh, people involved in, in a gambling operation, it's mainly a matter of state law. So uh, how we got here? We got here, gambling has been in every ancient society you can think of you, got, you know it uh, goes back through history and government regulation of gambling and most importantly taxation of gambling goes back just as, as long as recorded history basically uh the united states we began with uh lotteries lotteries actually conducted in england for the benefit of our colonies and then people in england got tired of sending their benefits over here so we started having lotteries uh, in the colonies and and virtually every com- colonies, later states, uh, had um, uh, uh, lotteries. That cause you, you don't have a, a, a way to tax like we do today. You don't have a way to impose income taxes, but you still need roads. You still need fortifications. You still need buildings. You still got to have a way to get money. In fact, a lot of early states uh, distributed their property. I was just over in Georgia and looked at uh, the... the uh, drawing uh, an exhibit they had on the drawings to win property in the state of Georgia. Ah. The home of the Sooners got their name for the people who went before the the lots were assigned. So it's, uh, there's always been sort of that gambling aspect uh, in American
0: law yeah well it's interesting that you mentioned land because it kind of makes me think of when everybody was rushing out to get land you know rushing west to get land and everybody was like whoever got there first and that was a gamble in and of itself right because you had lots of natural things going on there was a long journey lots of uh, investment and so on and so forth but i think gambling is just part of human nature and part of life. right? And so it's really become a matter of how do you regulate that? And for governments, it sounds like how do you make money off of it? (laughs) Which is not (laughs) only in the realm of gambling. Right. But with that being said, you know, how did things evolve from betting on things like lotteries to betting on animals or betting on sports right or humans or games or whatever the case may be right
1: well you know i think in terms of actually betting the betting on races or on sports or whatever has gone back forever it's really when did the prohibitions come in
0: Mm.
1: horse racing has in general been sort of a gentlemanly thing so even in england when they began putting in some restrictions on on gambling uh horse racing was exempt and Pretty much in the United States, it it was exempt. Uh, in the 1800s, going to a baseball game was almost like going to a racetrack. There was a lot of gambling that took place at the ballpark. Uh, but a, a temperance movement came about uh, broadly, and then specifically, I think that the, the the real uh empathy, the real drive for so much of uh, sports prohibition gambling was in. 1919 when the Chicago White Sox threw the World Series to the Cincinnati Reds they became known as the Black Sox after that uh and and uh, w- you know suddenly the, the people behind sports recognize if we're going to have a legitimate game we got to have our competitors trying hard fighting hard doing stuff and gambling is a corrosive element towards those things and so we got to we got to try to push that that away so that became a very significant issue. Of course, mobsters, and, and when you suppress things, as we learned in Prohibition, <laughs> it, it, the mob figures out there's a profit to be made now, so they move in that area, uh, and so you you, you create uh, you create a whole opportunity for an underground gambling, and that has existed throughout time. You know, the, watch the 1930s movies uh, about the mob running a numbers game, which is essentially a state lottery today. We <laughs> call it. <laughs> uh, so uh, uh it's just the characters have changed but the game's still about the same
0: and it's my understanding that as far as mississippi goes historically it's been a reasonably friendly state towards gambling is that a fair assessment or how would you describe sort of the history of gambling's evolution in mississippi specifically
1: right yeah i think uh it's interesting because Mississippi did not have a lottery until fairly recently, so did not huh. did not jump into the lottery uh, realm the way most states did. Rather, went first with uh, riverboat casinos and uh, jumped into that very heavy uh, heavily in the 1990s. Um, although it's geographically restricted to our Gulf Coast or along the Mississippi River, with county boat approval required, so not every county has it, even if you're on the coast or the river. Um, but, uh, and and for a long time, it was very clear the people who were working with the state and with the casinos, they wanted sports betting. I mean, I, I was quite certain that when the opportunity presented itself, the, uh, the state would, um, jump for, uh, sports betting. And in fact, they in fact had the law in place. So there was a federal statute, uh, that, that prohibited uh, states that didn't already have gambling from opening up new gambling. Uh, so Nevada always Nevada had a sports book, and you used to have to go there to place a bet. Two different federal laws kind of made that necessary that you had to travel there. You couldn't call all in. Uh, but when that law was declared unconstitutional in 2018. Mississippi was up with sports betting immediately, although our sports betting requires you to be at the casino. We don't have the across the, you know, wherever you are, bet on your phone kind of gambling even today, which is interesting. We thought about state law differences. Tennessee, which is, I'm very close to Tennessee and I'll be up there Monday. Um, right. uh, they don't have casinos, but you can bet from anywhere on your phone. We have casinos, but we can't bet from our phone right now. I think that a Coming down the pike, <laughs>
0: That's but, a conundrum. But, but it, it's just
1: how states do things so differently, and uh, and I I ultimately think the, the betting on the phone is the will become the norm, uh, but uh, sure not now here.
0: And how about sort of the evolution of Native Americans and indigenous peoples, Indian tribes being involved in sort of gambling and having. To some degree a monopoly over sports betting in certain areas how has that evolved or what does that look like in mississippi
1: well in mississippi there, there is not a monopoly they they can offer the, the the thing they have a monopoly on so to speak is they don't have to be on the water the way the commercial casinos uh, have to be
0: so they have an exception
1: they have and and that's generally how it works the tribes if if the state allows gambling the tribes can have it if there are regulatory matters that apply to casinos the regulatory matters don't apply to the uh, tribes so that's that that's why they can have the same type of gambling that's offered on our riverboats but they can have it on their land-based casino
0: and how does sports betting or mobile betting i guess work if so say somebody is on an indian reservation are they able to bet on their phone or like yeah, what I, does that I mean, look like it,
1: it, 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 this is how, how, how
0: <laughs> not sure no it's, it's how
1: funky the, the, the mississippi lies if you're at a casino you can bet on your phone there actually is that and i said there's no phone bet. okay if you're at the casino you can bet but you got to be at the casino which almost negates
0: defeats the purpose yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> drive to the casino to sit on my phone though that's what most people you could do be in the parking enemy. lot i
1: mean i think you could be in the parking <laughs> lot and, 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 and just, as long as you're on the property
0: so what if you are like live on the reservation or something like that but you're not at the casino and you want to use your phone to bet? is it like is it does it change kind of based on the reservation at all or is it purely just if you're in a casino end of story can i think
1: you phone. have to be on casino property now uh, yeah. actually bob is a little better informed um, and we're going to talk about the case which is a, a heavily uh in indian based case and so he may actually be able to nail that down a little more more strongly than i can
0: yeah no and i i appreciate that i apologize for asking anything that might be a little bit outside of your wheelhouse but i i was just kind of thinking of it from the perspective of everyone does everything on their phone now and so we're talking about history and we have sort of how things have developed but for so many years until relatively recent history no one could have anticipated that you could Use your phone to place a bet across the country in another country, so on and so forth. So history just doesn't really account for those types of issues, and so I was kind of just wondering how maybe Mississippi is seeing those issues pop up and how they might be handling them.
1: Well, you know, I I do. I've had students before talk to me. You know, why is it legal for me to get online and gamble with this uh, offshore casino? How come that's legal and I can't do it with our, our Mississippi skills? And I have to, I actually, actually literally this past semester, the student who asked that question, uh, I asked him to research that for me. <laughs> and and he, 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 he could write a semester paper on that. He ended up writing the semester paper arguing that, that, that uh, there should be a special penalty on those uh, casinos that are lying to people I say Because if, if you're betting if you're betting online across jurisdictional uh, boundaries, you're probably in violation of the law. Well, you're probably not going to be prosecuted, but you're probably in violation of law. The operators are more at risk in uh, situation like that.
0: Well, and that leads me to my final question for you, if you don't mind, Ron, and that's about enforcement. So historically, how have gambling you know, violations or criminal conduct been Enforced or uh, investigated. I mean, obviously, you have big cases like you talked about the mob. So you have cases where you have criminal enterprise. But you know, just your regular Joe schmo who's doing something, or you know, especially nowadays, if you do do something like that on your phone, like just what does that look like? How does law enforcement act? Or kind of how has that evolved?
1: Well, if you think about the various crimes that uh, a prosecutor has to deal with, uh, a a small bet situation is a fairly trivial thing so it's one of the one of the things i mean technically you're violating the law you shouldn't do it uh, the odds of being prosecuted are, are really quite low if you actually go to a situation and, and somebody even if you get an operator who's, who's maybe there's somebody who's taking some bets on a college campus because that still happens uh and it suppose it goes to uh trial and you're trying to tell the jury that the people who do it over there on that place, and as professional, it's okay for them to do. But this guy who's doing it out of his dorm room in college, it's, it's a serious crime for him to do. It, you know, society has changed in the way we view gambling uh, over, about, I don't know, 25 years. Uh, from where we did think of it as mobsters and really bad stuff to where now it's a form of entertainment that we use in Mississippi and elsewhere to attract people from out of state to come and visit. Uh, so, so, I, I think it's a lot harder to, you know, seriously prosecute a case, whether it's an operator or, or a player or whatever. Uh, um, again, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I mean, there are laws and you should follow the law. Uh, but the, the, the prosecutions, I think, are much less common than they, they would have been a couple decades ago
0: and what about i mean as myself someone who had to do their character and fitness and as your students have to go through that process as well (laughs) that is something that they would have to consider so i mean it's not necessarily just criminal penalties you have licensure and other issues right? right and you know those are things that students need to consider especially if you're in your dorm room as you say and you're having a good game of poker and whatever the case may be uh so it does pop up in different ways but i i just wanted to kind of get your feeling on the evolution of enforcement because i I kind of think back to prohibition and people like rocking into the speakeasy and arresting everybody and you know obviously that's not how things operate today
1: for lots of different reasons Watching the movie (laughs) distinct but one one, one of my uh (laughs) one of my my, my uh, things that my students credit me for, I played poker with Justice Scalia one time, so.
2: Wow,
0: that is a claim. <laughs> well, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of background and talking about the history. And so now, Bob, if I can move on to you and you could talk to us a little bit about the present. Obviously, there's been a big case about the Seminole Tribe.
3: Yes, that's right. On June 30th, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals reversed uh, the trial court and allowed uh, the compact that the state of Florida and the Seminoles had negotiated back in 2021, which allows the tribe to offer sports betting both on reservation and mobily. Uh, the D.C. Circuit reversed the trial court and held that that compact was legal under federal law. So we are now waiting here in Florida for the Seminoles to start up um, their sports betting operation. They actually had it for a very short period of time in 2021 uh, before it was shut down because of the lawsuit. Um, Because of the court deadlines having to do with the opinion um that Seminoles won't actually be able to start until August 21st but that's perfect for them because the first college football game this year is August 26th the first NFL game is September 7th and i fully expect that the Seminoles will be up and ready to take bets um, when those yeah you know, when the when the college football season starts
0: and now what exactly, you know, let's let's take just a quick step back before we talk more about the case and just discuss what exactly does the Florida law look like at this moment, besides sort of this issue with the Seminole tribe?
3: Yeah, and we actually have to take an even further step back. Oh, um, yes, okay. So uh, Indian gambling um, started in, uh, the gambling on Indian reservations began in 1979 here in Florida, when the Seminoles opened up a high stakes, uh, bingo hall, um, that bingo, the legality of that bingo hall was litigated almost immediately, but only went as far as the federal appeals court, which upheld the Seminoles right to have gambling on their own land. A few years later, with other tribes around the country now following the Seminoles blueprint that case, the issue of whether tribes could have gambling on their reservations even in states that do not allow gambling got to the U.S. Supreme Court from a tribe in California called the Cabazon tribe and in 1987 The U.S. Supreme Court held that tribes were sovereign on their own land and on their own land could do pretty much anything that they wanted unless what they wanted to do was specifically prohibited by Congress because Congress under the U.S. Constitution has plenary or complete power over Indian tribes. This led in 1988 to the passage by Congress Of the indian gaming regulatory act which said that certain forms of gambling on indian land by indian tribes did not require approval from anyone and the statute talks about three types of gambling class one class two class three class one is traditional indian gambling really used for religious rights or you know holiday rights um, class two is bingo and then class three is what everybody really thinks of is gambling the Las Vegas style casinos. And the Indian gaming regulatory act says, with respect to class one and class two Indian tribes can do those types of gambling on their own land without needing anyone's permission. But when it comes to class three gambling, real gambling, the tribes have to enter into an agreement known as a compact with their state. So the question in the Seminole case was whether or not IGRA permits gambling, remote gambling, and specifically in the case of the Seminoles, remote sports gambling that is uh, taking sports bets from someone who is not on the Seminoles land. The trial court had said that IGRA does not permit such betting. The circuit court said that it does permit such betting so long as the tribe gets the state's approval, which the Seminoles had gotten back in 2021 from the state of Florida because the state of Florida, like some other states such as Connecticut has basically farmed gambling out to the Seminoles and said, to the extent that we're going to have gambling in Florida, it's basically going to be run by the Seminoles. So the federal law was the first question. Did federal law allow the type of deal that had been struck by the state and the Seminoles, and now we know, at least as far as the D.C. circuit is concerned, the answer is yes. There is a second question now here in Florida, whether Florida state law allows such gambling. We passed a constitutional amendment in 2018 that said that any expansion of gambling requires a statewide vote with passage by at least 60% of the voters. So we are expecting a lawsuit to be filed that will say that even though the federal government has now signed off, the state voters now must sign off. My own feeling is that that lawsuit has no more chance of success, has in fact less chance of success than the federal lawsuit, because that 2018 amendment was actually written by the Seminoles. It defines that type of gambling that is subject to the amendment as casino gambling, roulette, slots, craps, blackjack, you know, traditional things. Sports betting, except in Nevada, has never been a traditional part of casino betting. And then more importantly, that constitutional amendment, because it was written by the Seminoles, has a carve out, has a specific provision that says, and nothing in this amendment applies to Indian gambling. So that lawsuit, no doubt is coming. Uh, depending on which judge is drawn to hear the case, uh, it is possible that that judge could issue an injunction that will temporarily stop again sports betting in Florida. But I have no doubt that that lawsuit will eventually get thrown out. I predict they'll get thrown out very quickly. Um, and then we really will finally have sports betting here in Florida.
0: And when did this sort of the seminal case, when did it start? Do you remember? Was it 2021?
3: So the seminal case, I believe it was filed. Yes, it was filed in 2021. I believe it was filed. She ruled in November of 2021. So I believe it was filed in the summer of 2021. I'd have to go and check and see. But it was filed very quickly, and the suit was filed by a paramutual company called West Flagler. They have uh, a, they have been long time dog track operators here in Florida, and they objected to the Indians to the Seminoles being given a monopoly on sports betting by the Florida legislature.
0: And I know that this is a question that I had. Can you just tell us a little bit about, or like, what is a paramutual? So
3: a paramutual is a Term of art. It refers to horse tracks, dog tracks, and highlight frontons. And it refers to those three types of establishments because each of those establishments use a form of betting called paramutual betting, which originated in France. And we can turn it over to Wes because he's got a great definition of the difference between paramutual betting and other types of betting.
2: Sure, the um, with with other types of betting, like uh, you go into a casino and you you uh, play roulette and you, uh, you you throw a seven on your first try. Well, you know what the odds are. The difference in a paramutual situation is it's a pool bet, and so what your payout is, what you receive for a winning bet. Depends on the amount of money that has been bet. That is the size of the pool, and that's the big difference here between traditional table games and and other forms of of gambling, and the and the parimutuel. Right. Exactly. Right.
0: Okay. So, like, basically, when I go into there's like a horse track here in New Orleans, and I go into the horse track, and they have the names of the horses and all the odds. Like those odds are kind of the different. Okay, th- that's like the differentiating factor.
2: Yes, but but they they can also change. That oh is, yeah, they change um, a lot. You, the numbers may, just keep at changing. <laughs> you, at the time you place your bet, you may you may think that well I'm betting on this horse and it and it pays five to one. Well, by the time the race is run, the odds may have changed dramatically in your favor or dramatically against your favor so um it again it it all depends on the it all depends on the total
3: size of the pool
0: Uh uh-huh yeah the few times i've gone it's it's never been in my favor
3: right because what happens of course is if everyone is betting on horse number one and you bet on horse number eight and let's say $10,000 total has been bet and you win. Well, you don't have to share that with anybody because you were the only one who bet on horse number eight. On the other hand, if, when you place your bet on horse number eight, no one has bet on horse number eight, but then heavy betting comes in on horse number eight. Well, now you're going to share any winnings if horse eight, if horse eight wins with lots and lots of people. So, you know, as Wes just said, when you go into a casino, You know, the odds at a particular table are three to two. And those odds will not change, even if lots of people are playing at that table, or if no one is playing at that table, and you're the only one who's playing at that table. But in a paramutual, it's very important not only how many people are betting, but whether they are betting with you or whether they are betting against you. And that's, of course, where we get terms like the odds on favorite it means the crowd is betting on that horse for example whereas a long shot no one is betting or very few people are betting on that horse and so the question is are you going with the crowd or are you going against the crowd you don't have that in a game such as blackjack because the odds are fixed
0: right so then sports sports betting right as, that's not necessarily sort of like horse racing or, or those types of sports but like an NFL game or an NHL game, whatever. Are that is paramutual betting? Or it's just that it's the two sides? Or or what is which which type of betting is that? Do you see what I'm trying to say? Like it's like yeah, do you have so fixed odds? <laughs> sorry, right. am I asking a too complicated question? I guess I just was thinking I'm like, you only got two options to pick from really, unless you're doing, you know, something where you're doing by shot or point differences or yeah you got like all kinds of different like nuances but just the general idea uh and i asked because you said that paramutuals were the ones bringing this lawsuit so i didn't know if they otherwise thought that they were like oh i should be able to handle sports betting and not the indian tribe
3: well all right i mean let's take that first and then we'll come back to your other questions so in west flagler's lawsuit west flagler said that the indians should not be allowed to have a monopoly now we know that a state can pretty much do whatever it wants when it comes to gambling. So we have states in this country, of course, like Hawaii and Utah that have outlawed basically all forms of gambling. Utah outlaws all forms of gambling. Hawaii outlaws all forms of gambling, except what they define as social gambling or penny ante gambling among friends. And then you have states like Nevada, where you can have pretty much any kind of gambling and (laughs) every type of gambling exists on pretty much every street corner. And then we have states all over the place, you know, between those two extremes. So states clearly can give, and courts have held this over and over, states clearly can give a monopoly to an Indian tribe. The only thing that the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act of 1988 says is that you cannot give a monopoly to non-Indians and freeze out the Indians. But it says nothing about going the other way and in a famous case called joe's audit choke um, in the from the ninth circuit uh federal court of appeals years ago it held that oh yes igra requires you to give parity to the indian tribes but if you as a state want to give more to the tribes if you want to give them a monopoly as has been done in places like connecticut absolutely positively you can do it so West Flagler could not make the argument that it really wanted to make, which is that the state of Florida gave a monopoly when it came to sports betting in their Uh. 2021 agreement with the Seminoles. They couldn't make that argument. So they made the next best argument that they could make, which is that as part of that monopoly, the state of Florida gave the Seminoles mobile sports betting remote sports betting off reservation sports betting and that that was illegal under igra and that is what the dc circuit found was okay with respect to sports betting there's always there are always odds right um and so you might have for example um The typical sports bet is done as a money line, and you've always seen like plus 110, minus 110, it's telling you how much you have to bet in order to win a certain amount, but as the game draws closer, the line can change. And it can change because a particular player gets injured before the game, a particular player okay. comes is is going to play when they went thought they were going to play. And so the odds are always changing, but they're changing as whoever is doing the sports book, whoever is taking the bets, tries to balance off their books. But if Ron and Wes want to jump in, feel free.
0: No, I, I just appreciate this because I I don't know if you can tell, but uh, my gambling experience is quite limited, whether it comes to sports betting or otherwise. <laughs> uh, and so this makes a lot more sense to me as far as just the context of how gambling works and, and how odds work and the different types. And I guess the last question I had for you, Bob, is related to kind of So with the Seminole case, right, you have this idea that it's not truly off reservation gambling because if someone's using their phone and running it through the server and the server is on Indian tribal land, they're really technically all on Indian tribal land. Is that correct? Is that something that's like part of this case here? Or am I misunderstanding?
3: so no no you're you're exactly right so the question is i mean igra says and the cabazon case that led to igra says that on indian land indian tribes are sovereign and can do whatever they want within the strictures if there are any strictures that congress has set when IGRA was passed in 1988, the internet did not exist. And therefore, IGRA says nothing about, well, can I sit on my couch, place a bet with the Seminoles, but I'm not on their land. Wes Flagler said, no, no, you have to be on their land. You don't have to be in their casino necessarily, but you have to have made it onto reservation land so that The question you were asking before, um, I think that if you are in your car and you are driving and there are big signs here in Florida now entering Seminole reservation, right. As soon as you pass that sign, assuming that the Seminoles are set up for it, you could place a bet with them using your phone because while you haven't made it to their casino, you've made it onto their land and that's all that Igor cares about that you've made it onto their land. So the question is, what if I'm not on their land, nowhere near their land? I'm in Florida somewhere, but that's all I'm. That's that's all that I've accomplished. I'm in Florida. Wes Flagless said, "Not good." Enough.
0: Yeah, you want to place your bets at Disney, right?
3: You're at Disney, and while the kids are at Disney. There's a Seminole uh, casino nearby. <laughs> They're waiting you're waiting in line, exactly. Right. So the question is, can you do that? West Flagler said, "No, can't do it." The agreement between the state of florida and the seminoles because the seminoles wanted remote sports betting because obviously you get a much bigger market share if you don't have to have people trekking out to your casino if they can do it from their couch or while standing online at disney Um, so the state of florida said fine you know we'll let you have that and the question was If a state gives you permission, is that good enough? Or does, would IGRA have to be amended to specifically say off land bets are okay? There was a case years ago from the ninth circuit again, California federal appeals court called desert Rose, that said, Nope, you have to make it onto the Indians reservation. You have to make it onto their land. Not good enough, uh, that the bet is accepted by a server that is on the Indian land. You, the patron, you, the better, have to be on land. The difference between Desert Rose and the reason why everybody who argued that Desert Rose um, answered the question, the reason they were wrong was because California had never given tribes permission to accept remote bets. In Florida, the state of Florida specifically in their agreement said remote bets are okay, and that was the critical difference between Desert Rose and the Seminoles case. So now, after the DC Circuit's ruling, as long as you as a tribe get your state to commit in writing that yes, you the tribe can take remote bets as long as the bet is ultimately accepted on your own territory, you are good to go under federal law. And I think that's the right result because the problem with IGRA having been passed in 1988, the people who passed IGRA, who wrote and passed IGRA, obviously did not have a crystal ball and therefore could not see the advent of the internet. And I have no doubt that if we had a time machine and went back to 1988 and we asked those legislators, those people in Congress, and by the way, when the internet comes along, is it okay for tribes to take remote bets? They would have said yes, because it would have been a very odd thing for a legislator to say, oh no, they have to be, the better has to be on reservation land because the whole point of it was to help Indian tribes become economically self-sufficient. And therefore there was no legislator, no Congressperson who was going to vote um against that and that's why i always said that if it had gone wrong for the tribe if they had lost at the dc circuit and if they then had lost at the u.s supreme court two things that were never going to happen by the way that ultimately really didn't make much difference what the courts held because the tribe the tribes would then simply have gone to congress and said to congress we need a one sentence amendment to igra that says off reservation bets are okay. So long as the bet is ultimately received on a, by a server on Indian land and Congress, you know, presumably would have passed that law because that would certainly be in keeping with the spirit of gambling. And, um, your listeners should know lawyers, we face this situation all the time where technology, develops in a way no one could have foreseen at the time that a law was passed. We call that the omitted case problem where now you have a situation that was not foreseen and therefore is not covered by the law. This was the classic omitted case situation because the internet did not exist. And I mean, it it did, but I mean, it, it wasn't commercially available in 1988. Um, so but you know with the dc circuit having ruled as it did and the dc circuit's ruling does not disturb the ninth circuit's desert rose ruling because you have these two very different factual scenarios desert rose california did not approve um off-site betting uh florida did approve off-site betting
0: okay one last question for real this time bob now (laughs) i'm trying to think of a situation where we're in the middle all right I'm trying to think of like I'm going back to my days where my parents had a landline and say I was trying to place <laughs> place some sort of bet with my bookie and I'm calling on the phone and my bookie is located in a place where betting is allowed, right? <laughs> right? Is Has the courts or have the courts ever had to decide an issue like that? Because I feel like that's kind of the in-between we're thinking of here, right? Where like mobile, it goes to the server. But this, if I call on the phone, like has that ever been considered?
3: Yes, that's been considered many, many times. It's what Ron was alluding to when he was talking about the Wire Act, which is a 1961 statute. Very simply, in order for a bet to be legal, It must be legal, both where the bet is placed and where the bet is accepted. So if I'm in Nevada, which allows bets, but I'm calling for some reason to a bookie in Utah that does not allow any sort of bets. That's an illegal bet because only half the bet was legal. Where the okay. bet was placed, Nevada, but not where the bet was accepted, Utah. Where you really see this is where, and this again is what Ron was talking about, where you have somebody in the United States who goes, "Oh, there's a uh, offshore betting site. I mean, that I'm seeing on the internet that's in Costa Rica or Antigua or somewhere else. I'm going to place the, the bet because even though I can't legally place the bet here in Utah." They're telling me on their website that in Antigua, they're good to go. And in fact, they are good to go in Antigua, but the bet is illegal because it is not legal in both the sending state and the receiving state. So no, if you're in a state that does not have gambling, the fact that you're betting in Nevada, that's what Ron was saying. You have to go to Nevada. And then you're good to go so here in Florida the Seminoles will only be able to take bets from people who are in Florida, so if you're sitting in Georgia you're going to have to drive across the state line. Then you can place the bet now the one thing that should be underscored here is that if a state enters into an agreement with another state then the bet would be legal between those two states, because both states now have authorized that bet. So as Ron was saying about his students, you have to be very, very careful. And responsible betting sites will say words to the effect in very small print, you know, make sure that you are uh, legal, that you can legally place a bet with us. The, uh, the unscrupulous sites, you know, just say, oh yeah, you can bet with us. Um, and so you always have to check. Now there's something known as geo-fencing, which uh, gambling establishments, reputable ones use, where they figure out where you are And if you're in Utah, for example, and they're in Nevada um, and you try to place a bet, it will reject your bet and you'll get a message on your screen, your phone, your computer, however you're trying to place the bet that says, sorry, we've identified you as being in a state from which we cannot accept a bet. That's why underground bookies, illegal bookies, are still going to flourish because they don't care where you're located. <laughs> um, they'll take your money. Um, whether they'll pay out your money if you win, you know, that's a whole nother question. Um, but I and and I, I don't want to you know get too deep into this because Wes is going to cover this. Um, but I fully expect that. Sometime in the future, you're going to see right now, states are just authorizing betting, sports betting within their own territory, you know, as Ron was talking about, like in Mississippi um, and as we're doing here in Florida. But the next step will be for states to get together. And some states, you know, are already either doing it or talking about it. Uh, and they will start to make these sorts of arrangements, and you see it in the lottery field with the Powerball, where you're not just, you know, buying a Florida lottery ticket, you're buying a lottery ticket, that is so much richer, because so many more people are playing it, because you have all these states that have gotten together and said, yes, we're going to pool, we're going to have a, a, what is effectively a national lottery, there's some states that are not in Powerball. um, But That's, I think the next step, but Wes will, I'm sure you want to talk more about that.
0: Okay. Well, thank you so much, Bob. And I guess that means we're segueing to you, Wes. And I mean, now I'm just super concerned because it sounds like every state's going to have a different law and then states are also going to have joint agreements that everyone should know about too, when you're trying to figure out if you can place a bet. Am I understanding that correctly?
2: (laughs) I think that you are. Uh, The reality is, for example, in Texas. We do have, well, first off, let me back up and say, of course, and this is something that Bob mentioned, um, there are always going to be illegal betting going on. And certainly that's true, for example, here in Texas, where we don't have legal betting. Um, and so uh, there will always be uh, a market for the, the, the bookie who um, will carry on activities where either um, it's not legal in the state, or for some reason the the better is disqualified in his or her state uh, for for whatever reason being blacklisted, et cetera. And so uh, there will always be an illegal market. Now, having said that, uh, here in Texas, of course, you 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 think, gee, um, a very how shall I say it sports intensive state. <laughs> the the reality is um that the 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 legislature at this point in time is very negative toward the expansion of of gaming. We do have some games, we have a lottery, we do allow for uh, the the multi-state lotteries that that Bob was alluding to, both uh, Powerball and the Mega Millions. We do allow um horse racing and dog racing. Um, although our tracks are not operating right now, um, a lot of of economic problems. Plus, as we've as we've seen, even Churchill Downs uh, suspended operations due to a number of deaths among um, racehorses. So um, there is a a real concern here with regard to the future of of racing as a as a viable sports betting opportunity. Um, However, there is a very curious, and, and, and both uh, Ron and, and Bob mentioned this, the idea of the, the social gaming. One of the interesting things that occurred here in Texas just before the pandemic hit, a number of poker rooms opened across the state, taking advantage of the Texas um, social gaming exception.
0: Okay, so now, what exactly is the social gaming exception? Is that okay, the... this is
2: this is the uh, this is the Friday night poker night with okay. the, with the boys, you know that that kind of thing. Um, it is it is intended for just a a um, there, there cannot be well there are a number of restrictions. There cannot be a bank, so the so the operator of the game can't have a financial stake in the the situation, um, and the way that the poker rooms operate here because the social gaming exception in texas does not specify a location Mm -hmm. that's the big kicker here Um, other states uh, many of them um, specify you must be in a private residence or something like that in order to take advantage of the social gaming exception well, that's not the case here in Texas. And so the operators have been very smart. They um they require you to 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 have three different pools of money. One is to rent the seat at the table. The other is to place the bets with and the third is to pay for um uh concessions and uh tips ah. and that that kind of thing. So so they're very careful not to not to allow you to use your winnings to to pay for the seed or or pay for the tips and and that kind of thing and um uh of course, the pandemic closed most of that mm. um, they are beginning to reopen, however, and um at this point, because they started before the legislature could gear up and and ban them, um they are operating. In mostly um, metro areas uh, here in the state, uh, uh, not very much in the in the rural areas. And mm-hmm. of course, Texas being a huge state, we've got plenty of rural areas. <laughs> so um, so so legal poker um, is not a reality for for folks that live outside of a, a metro area. But um, the 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 future here with regard to to Texas, you would think. Because sports gaming, like all gaming activities, raises money for the state in a non mandatory tax way uh, would be very attractive. And that certainly fueled, I think, the development of of gaming in in many states um, as we moved from the 1980s into the 90s into the 2000s. Um, Texas has not done that um, systematically there have been gubernatorial candidates over the past 20 30 years who have conducted extensive polls to try to make it an issue um, and in a way to expand state coffers without a mandatory tax uh situation but uh, so far the the legislature has been uh, very resistant to this this kind of change so the The future for for states like Texas that don't have legal gaming uh, is is a bit uncertain, um, at least at least from from the Texas perspective. Now, right now, of course, we are ringed with with states that allow, uh, for the most part, gaming activities. You know, we've got Louisiana, we've got uh, Oklahoma, we've got New Mexico, all of which have casino-style gaming, and um, some of the her one of the largest uh casinos in the country is just across the red river from from Texas in Thackerville oklahoma the windstar casino so um it uh and and of course unofficially i i did a drive by no actually i have gambled there <laughs> but uh but uh it's I, I did sort of a, a headcount looking at license plates, and the overwhelming majority of license plates in the Windstar Casino parking lot were from Texas. And so sure. obviously there's a, there's a great interest among the people, at least some people, but not among the legislators at this point.
0: And why do you think that is? I mean, in, in states where gambling is not yet something that's legal, what are they holding on to? Especially because I mean, it's obviously an industry, and and the advent of enhanced sports betting, in particular, for things like fantasy and esports. Which I'd love to get your opinion on esports. But what exactly is holding them back? Like, why are they still like no?
2: That's a, that's a good question. The um, political commentators uh, raised this this issue a few years ago when the Texas Lottery Commission was reauthorized. In Texas, we have a sunset commission review process where the the commission reviews each state agency and bureau and all of that, looking to make recommendations to delete obsolete uh, programs and and, um, agencies. and. Uh, Normally, most sail through. It's almost a pro forma kind of process. And the commission recommended the reauthorization of the Texas Lottery Commission. But the Texas House of Representatives spent several hours debating the reauthorization of the Lottery Commission. It was just unheard of for a major state commission to go through that kind of debate and scrutiny. And so commentators were were raising the possibility that there is sort of a perhaps a conservative backlash with regard to gaming here in Texas. And that may be responsible for some of the uh, legislators' reluctance to expand things.
0: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, as someone in Louisiana, well, I'm in New Orleans i think people would debate whether that's really part of louisiana sometimes but i'm in louisiana (laughs) and overwhelmingly when it came up for sports betting to be legalized particularly when it was a question about fantasy sports I think overwhelmingly people were like yeah let's do it um and so i think too a lot of it has to just do with like history and culture right i mean in louisiana particularly southeast louisiana it's very common anywhere along the mississippi uh, because of the boat casinos and and things you have going on along the river it's just very culturally kind of acceptable. Uh, and I could see maybe Texans feeling a little bit different just as far as how the culture is there. But please, I'm not, I don't live in Texas. I've only visited, so correct me if I'm wrong.
2: Well, no, I think, I, I think you're right that, that there certainly is a significant um, percentage of the population for religious or moral grounds would oppose any kind of expansion of gaming. Um, the, the problem is knowing what that percentage is, because um I mean where we have um well where Texas does not have a referendum process like many Western states do, there's no way for um for the citizens themselves of Texas to propose a ah. constitutional amendment, uh legislation to allow for casinos as there could be say in California or the state of Washington, or those, those are some of the states that I know have a very significant um, referendum process. We don't have that in Texas. So I, I always wonder, you know, if we had it, would it pass? Is there a majority of Texans that favor expansion of gaming? Um, and the 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 problem is, or I say I give this, the the conundrum that we have is, of course, it's our legislature legislators that speak for us. So at this point in time, they're saying no.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, I mean, I guess my final question for you, Wes, and of course for Bob and Ron, if you have anything you want to weigh in with, is. You know, we've talked about sports betting and mobile betting on your phone and sort of gaming and and stuff like that and crossing and internet and all that what do you see as the next big thing in gaming and betting or what do you think's coming next is there anything that's kind of simmering on the back burner that you think people are going to want to be fighting about next
2: well part of it is what you mentioned earlier the esports situation Mm. which right now um, and for those who may not be familiar with it, what we're talking about is betting on people essentially who play video games. <laughs> and uh and and that those are the performers. Okay, just as just as you know, the the horses and the dogs are in racing and the high lie players and the, the frontons and and all. This is a situation where one can place bets on the players involved. And there are teams and there there are leagues. Um, yeah. and uh for the for the most part these are not regulated by the states or not regulated t- as tightly as other betting activities are so i'm thinking that that will probably be the next kind of frontier here if states want to uh begin to to regulate uh, those kinds of activity
0: and i'd probably wager <laughs> uh that this has become more common even after covid right because people were kind of like in their homes and i mean i know at least just from being on social media a little bit that twitch is a really big thing and i had never really known anything about twitch but i mean essentially that or even live streaming on things like youtube you can just watch There's so many people who sit there and just watch people play games and some of the biggest videos on YouTube, like with millions and millions of people looking at it is just watching someone play a video game. And so I'd imagine, I mean, all of this, I think, in my opinion, right, comes down to economics, money and industry capitalism, of course, and so if there's a way to make money to do something, I'm sure it will be an issue in the future. And so I could easily see esports being something that becomes a a question. But it's interesting because you have like minors engaging in this activity, which I think kind of raises a whole new question because you have kids who are gaming and just live streaming on TV and, and whatever. And so it raises a lot of new issues because people who didn't have access just like when the internet was created now have access to engage in these activities and so i'm interested to see where it turns out are there any cases pending about esports anywhere that you all know of or any legislation i'm not aware of any
2: any case but i I, well, I know it's being it's being widely uh debated at among the gaming associations and professional associations as to what ought to be a good approach and that kind of thing. But I'm not aware of any very specific legislation or or cases at this point.
0: Interesting. Well, I guess we'll see. And I'll just have to have you all back to talk about eSports and what is going on and how we can all place our bets if it's legal for us to do so. Not that I would know what I'm doing any better than I'm Betting on racehorses. But is there anything else that we didn't get to talk about that you want people to know about, consider, or anything interesting that we didn't get to discuss?
1: There's so much stuff.
2: (laughs) 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 I'm
0: sure we could talk about this for days. (laughs) That's why you have a casebook (laughs) and a whole class about it.
2: (laughs) Exactly. I I,
1: I, I mean, one thing that's kind of interesting that, that we're dealing with with sports betting and stuff is the combination of. NIL uh, collectives in particular and uh, the ownership stake that fans feel when they're a member of that and they're betting <laughs> and the coach isn't playing their player uh, that the, there's uh, there's some tension that's already beginning to develop. I, I don't think it's really hit the popular attention yet, but you talk to some coaches and you're seeing how that is influencing uh, And I'm not sure it's influencing, but it has potential to influence coaches. Coaches are beginning to feel pressure uh, with that sort of combination. Fans, when you're betting and you're donating and you're NIL and you're collective, you you feel a a greater sense of ownership. So it's, um, it's an interesting phase. We're about, we're about, we're just entering into.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's fair. I, the for. Sorry for listeners NIL is name image likeness is that right and that's like you know a person's face and and the context in which I know about it is with the NCAA and EA Sports and how college students can't earn money from or any sort of benefits from playing the sport but their name their image their likeness is used all of these components rather are used in these games and they're making no money from it even if the school or other people are making a lot of money from it obviously creators of the games are making a lot of money from it and so i know it's a an issue in that respect i guess i didn't really think about it in relation to gambling but that makes total sense ron and bob sorry what were you going to say
3: yeah no and on nil you know states now have passed laws the ncaa has changed its regulations so college athletes now are making money Mm -hmm. off their nil's um and that has become a Um, very big issue when you are recruiting high school athletes, um, colleges are saying, come to us because your NIL will be worth more. But there are a few things I think that before we wrap up today that we should point out. The first is that while gambling is a universal human trait that goes back thousands of years, what humans bet on change, changes over time. So in the 1920s the three biggest sports in the united states and the three biggest sports that from a betting standpoint were boxing horse racing and baseball well boxing nowadays is a niche sport at best um and it is really being replaced among younger people they are not interested in boxing what they're interested in is mma horse racing, the tracks are dying, uh, and basically, you have to now really go out of your way to find a horse track. Um, And baseball, of course, has taken a very big backseat to football. So there will be betting in the future. But as Wes was saying, Uh, we're going to see betting on esports. We've already had cases. Some of them are in our book, um, where people have sued over, um, video games and loot boxes and, you know, the payouts on games. So Um, there's a natural evolution. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a natural evolution, uh, to gambling. The other thing that we should point out is that when the federal statute banning, uh, sports betting was passed in 1991-92, and that was the brainchild of Senator Bill Bradley, who had been both a college athlete at Princeton and a professional uh, basketball player with the New York Knicks. When that was passed, that law really wasn't needed, because except in Nevada and a few minor states that had very minor types of sports lotteries, um, no state was allowing sports betting. When that law was struck down as unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2018 in a case called Murphy versus NCAA, um, states had done a 180. And so today, as, as we sit here in July of 2023, you have, depending upon how you count, 34 to 38 states that allow sports betting. That's three quarters of the country. You're going to get Florida, uh, we already have Illinois and New York, California is going to get sports betting. It was on their 2022 ballot. It got defeated, but that was because there was a lot of infighting among the hundreds of tribes in California. They, uh, need to come to some sort of agreement and then the voters will approve it so that very soon in just about everywhere in America, there will be legalized sports betting and then there will be these interstate agreements um and so uh we are just really at the beginning of what will be an enormous industry it has been estimated that the sports market the sports betting market is a 400 billion dollar market now most of that historically has been underground, has been illegal. Um, but imagine as that, you know, now is coming out of the shadows here in Florida, we expect our legalized sports betting market to be somewhere in the neighborhood of $10 billion. And that's just betting by fluidity. If we go, uh, if we now start to have, as we will interstate agreements, I mean, that will be, you know, even larger. So as, certain types of betting, betting on horse racing, betting at the pari betting on boxing go away, other forms of betting and sports betting, you know, come along because the bottom line is people want to bet. You will never be able, you, you can ban it, you can make it illegal, but you can't get rid of it. And I think states at this point, and the federal government have realized, you know, it is better to legalize it and to regulate it and to get taxes, you know, to get, re- to get revenues for the government from it than to leave it in the hands of the mob. Um, but I do wanna go back uh, to one other thing that we talked about here today, and that is even if you had tomorrow, legalized betting on all forms of gaming throughout the country. And that will never happen because Hawaii, Utah will never have uh, gambling. Uh, Texas, who knows, you know, with their constitutional impediments uh, as well. (laughs) We'll find out. Right. Right. But there will always be a certain segment of betters who will bet illegally. And we should take just a second and explain why that is um you might have somebody who is banned and who therefore cannot cannot go to a legal betting establishment those those are very 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 rare cases very few people get banned the people who mostly want to use illegal bookings are people who either don't want to have to declare their winnings to the irs Or people who are undocumented Mm. and are afraid that if they win the lottery or the sports betting agency or, you know, whatever the gambling establishment is, will share their information and then they will be picked up. The other thing that illegal bookies do that the government, for example, and, you know, when you're talking about lotteries and Ron was talking about the numbers game, is that they will traditionally have traditionally extended credit and allowed very small bets and allowed bettors to you know, uh, play week after week while, you know, interest is running. So there will always be some amount of illegal sports betting. And the last thing, the very last thing that we should talk about is that, as you said, at the top of the program, um, it is very, very important for any individual who is thinking about engaging in any activity, but particularly but particular activity that could constitute betting to check the laws in their own state, because every state, their laws, when it comes to betting are very different. Uh, There tend to be lots of nuances and exceptions and you make a real mistake if you just you know read something on the internet and go okay I'm good to go. Um, that probably is not so. And to kind of
0: just throw something else in there in that same vein, Bob, uh, as you can tell from our discussion even though there's a long history in this area of law, it is one that continues to evolve and continues to change regularly. So this isn't an instance where you wanna read the law and then five years later place your bet thinking it's the same. So just throwing that out there for what it's worth, you're going to wanna check it if you're engaging in this type of activity on a a regular basis, because it is likely to change based on everything we've discussed today.
3: Right, and raffles are fine if, If they are legal and if they are operated in a legal manner, but I am, I, every few years I'm asked by some student group at my law school, they want to do a raffle. They want to do a sweepstakes. They want to do some sort of an event where there'll be some sort of a prize, but that all of the money raised by the group is going to go to a worthy cause. And so. The group always says to me, the student group always says to me, so we're good to go, right? And it's like, no, you're not. And the state of Florida in particular has very specific laws about who can offer, you know, any game of chance, as you know, Wes was saying, um, and whether you can hand out prizes, what sorts of prizes you can hand out. And the paperwork is daunting. I have never had a student group after they have met with me go ahead and run whatever raffle or sweepstakes or you know whatever tournament or thing they wanted to do because the paperwork is daunting and it must be filled out precisely and it must be adhered to precisely. And we have cases in the book where groups like veterans groups have gotten into lots and lots of trouble with their state regulators because they did not fill out the paperwork and they did not adhere to the rules and their defense is always we didn't know we didn't have the money to hire a lawyer and the state does not care um what your excuse is
0: no and i mean i think that brings us back to our very first topic that we covered which is what on earth is gambling and i think it just covers a lot of the activities that people participate in and don't necessarily think about in the context of law and regulation and, and gaming and gambling. And so I appreciate you clarifying that and, and and providing that insight, because like I said, I think everybody at some point in their life has participated in a raffle. And so it's a really accessible and easy example for people to understand.
3: But, but we should also point out there was a time in this country when being in the stock market or buying insurance was considered to be a form of gambling and was illegal. Uh, And we passed laws to allow that kind of activity. So one should never just assume that what they are doing is either not gambling or is permissible. Um, You really have to look into it and, and it's usually good to, to ask a lawyer about uh, what it is you want to do.
0: Yes. As, as all lawyers know, the answer is always, it depends. And that's where we're going to leave our discussion, I think, but I, you know, I appreciate y'all and talking about the history and the law and I think this is just really interesting to a lot of people, because as you've seen from your own students, people come in with questions about this stuff because it's something that everyone has seen in one way, shape or form. And so thank you for sharing all of your wonderful knowledge with us. I really appreciate it. And I hope you'll come back and visit us again.
3: Anytime. Thank you for having us.
0: And that's a wrap on another episode of the Law School Lounge. I hope you found that information as enlightening and interesting as I did. It was definitely eye-opening for me. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, if you're interested in learning more about the law and legal issues in this area, please be sure to take a look at Gaming Law and Gambling Law Cases, Materials and Problems now in its second edition to learn more also reviews and follows really do help get this podcast noticed so if you have a moment i'd really appreciate if you could take some time out to leave a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on as well as give us a follow on social media you'll find us on twitter aka x law school lounge you'll also find us on instagram If you have any requests for different episodes, you can send me an email at lawschoolloungepod at caplaw.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.